So our theme verse for this series has been Hebrews 12.1. And this whole, uh, this whole verse ref refers to the previous chapter uh, that refers to all the heroes of the faith. And it says, therefore, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And the idea there is that all of those heroes in the previous chapter, as well as maybe some of our loved ones, are looking down on us, cheering us on. And so it says, let us throw off everything that hinders. And wh what this is saying is that it, it is acknowledging that life can be difficult sometimes. And so what we're doing is we're going back and we're looking at some of the heroes of the Bible. And we're just asking, since you're watching us, if you could come down out of the stands while you're watching us and give us any advice, what would it be? And so through our imaginations, as well as through the scriptures, we're asking ourselves, what can they teach us? And there is so much good information about David in his life that, that we're going to visit him again. And I, I, I think that perhaps one of the greatest measures of our maturity is how we handle authority, how we handle power, how we handle influence. In other words, how we respond when it dawns on us that we have the most influence or we're the most powerful person in the room, whether it's the boardroom, the classroom, the locker room, whether you're at work, at home, at school, at any moment, at any time, when it dawns on you that all eyes are on you, that you're in charge, whether it be by title or by influence, what do you do in that moment says so much about you, about you, about me, about all of us. Because the greatest reflection that, uh, that of our individual maturity is are we other-centered or are we self-centered? And few things are more disturbing than, and I think that you'll agree, than when you see somebody with power or influence and they leverage that for their own benefit to the neglect of those that they were actually responsible for. But at the same time, there are a few things more inspiring than a leader who has some kind of influence or, or uh, who says no to themselves. In other words, they say no to something that they can embrace for themselves for the people that they're responsible for. And so some of our favorite stories are men and women of influence that had power whether it was somebody that we've known or somebody that we've studied. And they have said no to themselves so that they could say yes to the people who have chosen to follow them. And I believe, uh, this is one of the things I believe, is that probably most of us really have no idea, you know, what lever we would push as, in, with influence until we get that influence. Until somebody actually gives us position or we earn that position or that influence, we really probably don't have any idea which way we would go with it until we actually have the influence. Or in David's case, until he got the crown. So, now, when David was a young man, Samuel the prophet, who was the authority of the, of the day, um, he showed up at David's house. And David was actually out in the field with the sheep. And so Samuel shows up and he says to David's father, Jesse, listen, I'm here on a mission. But as we would discover later, it was a secret mission. And the reason it was a secret mission is because Samuel's mission was to anoint the next king of Israel. And the reason that it was secret is because Israel already had a what? 
a king. Yeah, so if you're going to anoint the next one and there is already one, you better make sure to keep it a secret. So he shows up. He doesn't even tell Jesse, David's dad, why he's there. He just says, look, I'm here to do a special sacrifice, and I want you to invite all of your family to this special sacrifice. And the idea was this. That Samuel thought, as soon as I see the son of Jesse, because God had said it was one of Jesse's sons, as soon as I see him, God's going to give me the nod. He's going to let me know, and then I will anoint him. And so, uh, so, so they draw all the, family, all the family, and so they're looking across all the sons. And the text in 1 Samuel chapter 16, in verse 6, says this. says that when they arrived... Samuel saw Elab, which was Jesse's oldest son. That was the firstborn. And so typically you go with the firstborn in a situation like this. And so he thought, hey, sure, like the Lord's, you know, the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. And so he thinks, well, that's easy. I don't even have to do the sacrifice. I got this figured out. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance, which is actually kind of difficult to do. You know, the first thing that we do when we meet somebody is their appearance. And all of, and even in ancient times, uh, they would ascribe value to, and even authority and influence to those who looked good. And so God says to Samuel, "Don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him." Why? Well, because the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but, and yes, we do. But the Lord looks on the heart. In other words, it's it's what's in a person that makes a person. So ladies, don't be fooled by that outward appearance, right? It's what is in a woman that makes the woman, am I right? And so guys, never mind, you're hopeless. <laughs> anyway, so the story goes on. And six sons later, we still haven't found a king yet. And so they're starting the sacrifice, and Samuel's looking around, and he's thinking, well, maybe I missed something, maybe I missed God. So he finally says to Jesse, and imagine this awkward moment, in, uh, here in verse 11, he says, are these all the sons you have? And so Jesse kind of looks around, and he goes, oh, yeah, this isn't everybody. They're still the youngest, uh, that, and he says, he's still tending, or he's out tending the sheep. So Samuel says, send for him right now. We're not going to sit down until he gets here. And so David, who's probably about 13 or 14 this year, or this, about this time. And so God says to Samuel, this is the one. And then uh, in verse 12, it says that God told Samuel, get up and anoint him. This is the one. And then this strange thing happens where Samuel walks over to middle school David, pours oil on his head, gives him a blessing, packs up his stuff, and leaves. And the whole family is standing there is like, what just happened? Because there's no indication that Samuel actually told Jesse or the rest of the family what he anointed David to do. But here's what we know, is that since he was a little boy, David knew that God had something special for him. And about two years from that very moment is when he kills Goliath. And he becomes an overnight success. And so for the next seven years, things are great. And, um, and as we saw last week, after seven years, God, David falls out of favor with Saul, and he becomes a fugitive from King Saul for eight more years. And so for those next eight years, he's on the run with this band of guys that he has with him, uh, tr you know, trying not to side with the Philistines, but also trying to stay away from King Saul, who's trying to kill him. And... Um, and so at that time, 
all the time knowing God had chosen him for something special. And all the while, if you read through the story, all the while, he would learn some extraordinary lessons. And perhaps the most important thing that David learned in those wilderness years was this lesson. That it's not about me. It's, it's God's will. It's God's way. And it's God's time. That it's not about David. And so the interesting thing, too, is that on two occasions, David has an opportunity to kill King Saul. One of them is very famous, uh, where David is hiding in a cave, and King Saul's men are coming by, and David's just planning on waiting for them to pass by, and then David and his men will come out of the cave, and they'll go in the other direction and escape. And so, but right in front of the cave that David is hiding in, King Saul has to go to the bathroom. So he gets off his donkey and he goes into the cave. And so David and his men are hiding in this cave with his men and their eyes have adjusted to the light and Saul's eyes have not adjusted so he can't see. And so he stops in the mouth of the cave just beyond the point where anybody can see. And so he begins to do his business. And so this is like the most vulnerable position possible that you could be in. And all of David's men turn to him and say, are you kidding me? This is awesome. God just delivered your enemy into your hands. In fact, it says in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 24 and verse 4, it says, The men said, This is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And David almost falls for it. And so as David is about to kill King Saul, he realizes, No, 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 no. I will not take matters into my own hands. Saul... Uh, so Saul finishes and he comes out and gets out on his donkey to leave and then David appears in the mouth of the cave and everybody in Saul's army gasps because they know that he could have killed Saul at that moment but he chose not to now David is a bit mischievous as we're getting ready to find out because he walks out to the mouth of the cave and he says you that's actually that's a different translation that's he doesn't actually say that but he says, hey, Saul, and everybody looks, and there's David. And so then in, in verse 12, this is what he says. He says, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Although everybody behind me and everybody in front of me knows that I have every right to take your life because you were trying to kill me. And so, uh, so he lets him go. There's another story that's not so popular where, where um, Saul and his army are in the desert. And so they are, um, they are in these rolling hills with his army. And David sent spies out to try to, uh, to see what, where Saul was. And at that point, he, um, Saul decides to spend the night right in the middle of his whole army and he's right there in the middle of 3,000 men and his um, his spear is next to his head and because that's how they slept and as the sun goes down um, they're all asleep and David turns to his, his friend Abishai and he says I have a really bad idea would you like to do would you like to go with me on this adventure and this really bad idea and so, um, so Abishai says, yes, that would be awesome. I love bad ideas. And so then in, verse, in chapter 26 
and verse 7 it says so david and abishai went into the arm saul's army by night and they go into this army by night and saul is lying asleep inside the camp with the spear stuck in the ground by his head and abner now abner was the chief of the king's bodyguards and he was the one responsible for protecting king saul and so he and the soldiers were lying around him and so abishai said to david and i imagine he whispered because listen they've crept past the guards in the middle of three thousand soldiers and it's like what are they thinking and abishai probably whispers to david and he says today god has delivered your enemy into your hands now we missed this opportunity once and so now it's time to power up it's time to take what's yours god wills it look he's done this twice he gave you this opportunity how do we explain the fact that we are standing in the middle of King Saul's army and 3,000 soldiers, nobody has detected us. And so we're standing here next to sleeping King Saul. And Abishai says, look, David, I, I get it. You got all these religious convictions and all that kind of stuff. You can't lay your hand on God's anointing. But God didn't tell me anything. <laughs> and so in verse 8, he says, he says, um, in verse 8, there we go. He says, listen, let me pin him to the ground. I, with one thrust of the spear, I will not strike him twice. Imagine, David, I'll take his spear and I'll, and I'll, I'll get him right in the heart. His, the last person he'll see is your face. But David whispers back to Abishai in verse 9. And he says, listen, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, I refuse to violate the will of God in order to get the blessing of God and the blessings of God. I will not violate the will of God in order to gain the promises of God. I will not violate the will of God in order to get what I deserve. This is not about me. And then David and his men, they melt into the desert and they leave because David refused to replace what God had put on the inside of him. David refused to put to replace what God had done. Why? Because of God's will, God's way, and in God's time. See, it's got to be, he knew he had to be God's will, God's way, and God's time. And so listen, I know I'm skipping over a lot, but fast forward, eventually, King Saul and his son Jonathan are killed by the Philistines in battle. The two people that actually stood between David and the kingship, which he was anointed for. And so the tribe of Judah and see Israel had 12 tribes and the tribe of Judah, which was David's tribe, they declare him king over that tribe. But a guy named Ishbosheth, who was one of King Saul's other sons, he declares himself king over the other 11 tribes. So Ishbosheth try saying that uh he is over the 11 david's under uh, over the, the um over judah and for seven years there's a conflict between there's a civil war between these two kingdoms of israel and so in the middle of this this conflict david just tries to stay out of the way people continually are pushing him and saying claim what's yours claim what is yours over and over and over david says no nope, god's will God's time and God's way. I will not lay my hand on God's anointed. And if Ishbosheth has been declared king by those 10 or 11 tribes, then he is king. 
and I just need to stay out of his way. So this goes on for seven more years. And then finally, two brothers sneak into Ishbosheth's house, and while he's taking a nap, they murder him in his sleep. And they think that they've done this great thing for David because think about it, they have removed the last obstacle to David becoming king over the entire nation of Israel. That last obstacle has been removed. And so here's what it says. In 2 Samuel um, 4, 8, it says, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to kill you. So they present the head and they're so excited and this, you know, they're elbowing each other and they're singing like, this is the day, this is the day. That's where that came from. But then so David answers in verse nine. Let's look at that. David answered to Rechab and his brother Benah, these, these two brothers, uh, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me. Like the, the Lord that didn't need your help and didn't ask for your help. Verse 10 says, verse 10 says, when somebody told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and put him to death. I skipped that part of the story, but that was the reward that I gave him for his news. And now they're not so happy anymore. In verse 11, it says, how much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed? To which is at this point, the people around David would say, how can you say he is an innocent man? He was claiming the kingdom that belongs to you and trying to kill you. But in David's mind, that's not how he thought. It was God's will, it was God's way, and it was God's timing. And so how much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man uh, in his own house, in his own bed? And so let's go to verse 12. So David gave an order to his men and they killed them. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron, which was a sign of honor that he buried it there at Hebron. And so after he was dead and after his demise, the other 11 tribes, they finally uh, give David the, the kingship and they crown him the king. And he now is the king over all of Israel. And in this moment, this is what's amazing. David shows his true greatness. See, that he, now he's holding all the cards. His word is law. He already had the influence. He was the most powerful person in the room, even without a crown. So now, and in this moment, the text tells us that he made a covenant with them at Hebron. The King David made promises to the people, and, and this is completely unnecessary. He didn't need to do this. He was now the king, and his word is law. And so why would he, after being mistreated for all those years, and he's facing a group of elders who did not support him when he was on the run, I mean, he could have, he could have given revenge to, the, to every single person that was there except for the people that were a part of the tribe of Judah, his tribe, but he didn't. Instead, he made a covenant with these people. Why? In the last three words of this scripture, explain it all. And this is the point of this whole story. In 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 3, it says, When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron, before the Lord. 
So in this moment, David recognized in public that he would be the king under authority. In this moment, he would submit himself to God's law, which meant that as a leader, he was submitting himself to the very people that he would rule. This was his way of saying that I am a king, but I am not the king. Because as we said in the first message of, this, of David's story, all of David's ups and downs and with all of his flaws, he never confused himself with the king of Israel. So in verse 4, it says that David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned for 40 years. And so here's the point. David waited for 15 years for God to give him what he promised. That's patient. And it wasn't an easy 15 years, but he waited 15 years for God to give him what he promised. I mean, how, how impatient do we get when it's been a week? Hmm. And so during that time, he learned some extraordinary lessons, though, that would made, make him a good and a right king. He learned that leadership is always a stewardship and that kings are even accountable. And so while this is very inspiring, if you're a leader or you're a boss or you're an aspiring leader, there is something very inspiring about this story. But here's the thing. It's really not enough for us to just be inspired. Because whenever we watch somebody, uh, whenever we see a leader say no to themselves so that they can say yes to the people that they're leading, it's always inspiring. But if you're a Christian, it's not enough for us to just be inspired. See, that kind of greatness is actually required of us. And this is why I say that. A thousand years after this account with David, imagine that, a thousand years later after David and only 20 miles north of Hebron where all this took place in the city of Jerusalem, Jesus would model this exact same kind of greatness in the most unusual way. There would be, but there would be this twist to it. And here's what happened. John, who was there and was an eyewitness of all this, um, in, here's what he wrote in, uh, in John chapter 13. And so th this is what Jesus did to model what David modeled, but he models it with a little bit of a twist. And so John 13, 1 says, it was just before the Passover festival. And so the, the Jewish people, the Passover festival was when they would celebrate annually that moment or that time when God led the nation of Israel um, out of Egyptian slavery. And so Jesus, during this Passover meal, he, this would be his last Passover with his disciples. And he's gathered them, he gathers them in what's called the upper room. It's this special room where they would meet for this particular meal. And so they're finishing up and John, who was there, he says this, that somehow Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So Jesus knows evidently at this moment, in just a few hours, that he's going to be arrested, tried, and crucified. And just like David, just like David, he has been anointed by God, but not recognized. And so during this same meal, he would inaugurate a brand new covenant. Not between God and the 12 tribes, but against, he would introduce um, a new covenant. In fact, it's called the new covenant. The, the second half of our Bible is actually called the New Testament. And he would initiate a brand new covenant between God and all of mankind. 
but not through the blood of an animal, like in the Old Testament, but through, but through his own blood. And so this is this hinge moment in history between the time that he worked and functioned as a Jewish rabbi and a miracle worker, um, and it's this moment where he da- it dawns on him that, um, that, I don't know, maybe he didn't know this before, but right now in this moment, he recognizes that the end had to come. He recognized that this was a special moment, and here's what John said in verse 3. It says that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. See, in this moment, Jesus had the power without the crown, just like David. He had the authority without the title. He's holding all the cards, and he recognizes that God has put everything under his authority. And here's the question. What do you do when you're king? What do you do when you are the most influential person in the room? What do you do when you've got the whole world in your hands? And so John tells us in verse 4 that he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And at this point, the disciples probably could not believe it. There was so much emotion in the room. They knew what he was getting ready to do. And Peter gets up and he says, no, 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 you're not going to do that. We have people for that. We have servants for that. Put your clothes back on. You are not about to do what it looks like you're getting ready to do. You cannot wash our feet. You're a rabbi. We know what you can do with those hands, and you're not about to use those hands to wash our feet. And Jesus just smiles and ignores them. And after that, in verse 5, it says that after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And then he put on a robe that shows that, yes, he was a rabbi. Yes, he had authority. And he sat down, and he probably had a big grin on his face, and probably nobody said a word because they didn't need to say anything. He has just preached the most powerful lesson that he would preach to those disciples. He has done something that is so obvious by what he did that he didn't need to say anything, but he did say something. And I think maybe he said it for air benefit. And here's what he said, verse 14. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. If I'm not too good to wash your feet, you're not too good to wash each other's feet. So he would say to them and he would say to me and he would say to us, and if we're Christians, I think he would say to all of us, in those moments where you think you're something, where I think I'm something, when we think we're somebody, when we've got... We've got the authority, the influence. Everybody likes us better than everybody else. When we have the opportunity of a lifetime, when they set on our head the crown, in that moment, look for more feet to wash. Because one of the greatest reflections of our maturity, the thing that says more about our spiritual maturity than anything else, is can we be other-centered? And can we be other-centered when we have the power, the influence, and the authority. Perhaps the thing that says more about us than anything else is what we do when it dawns on us that we have the influence. It could be social, it could be financial, it could be uh, a title, but when it dawns on us that we are the most powerful person in the room, 
the locker room, the classroom, the boardroom, any room. And let's be honest, for most of us, on, in some level, in some capacity, somebody's already handed us the crown, the title. Because you've got a title. We all wear crowns. You're a father, you're a mother, a husband, a wife. You're a manager, an owner, a captain of the team. Maybe you're just the big brother or the big sister, the president, a board member, a scheduler, an elder, a team leader here at the church. But you have authority, you have influence. And we would do well to remember that Jesus modeled for us that when we are the most powerful person in the room, we leverage our power for the benefit of the other people in the room. That when we're the most powerful person in the room, when we're the most influential person in the relationship, that we leverage our influence for the benefit of the other people in the relationship. See, this is what David learned in the desert. This is what Jesus modeled for us. And if you are a Christian, this is required of us. It's required of me. It's required of you. Because after all, even the very Son of God did not come to be served. But in Mark 10 and verse 45, it says, For he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Could you imagine if all of us, if, if we all lived that way? History tells us that that kind of selfishness changed the world here with what Jesus did. And I believe that we have that same thing on the inside of us, that we can change the world. That when we, it dawns on us, when we have influence, we should look for a way to wash more feet. Look for a way to give more, to serve more, to bring more people to the feet of Jesus, to his house, and to help them know him better. See, that's what our Savior did for us, for you and for me.